0: Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 68 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is about FCPA guidance, opinion letters, and safe harbors. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and provide comments to help let other compliance professionals know about the podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, provides FCPA, or anti-corruption compliance services, We've collaborated with companies large and small in a variety of industries to design, enhance, and implement effective anti-corruption ethics and compliance programs. If interested in our services in this area, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, today's is uh, an Im- important discussion in my mind because uh, we all look for safe harbors in life. And uh, the there is a lot of good guidance out there in terms of how to get to safe harbors, in terms of compliance and and particularly in complying with the FCPA and all of its uh, ins and outs and nuances. So I wanted to start just by going back to probably perhaps my favorite document in the compliance space, and I think it's the most valuable. And that is the FCPA guidance, uh, which was issued in November of 2012, believe it or not. So we're talking about almost uh, six years ago. And uh, remember just the background of it. It was a result of a sort of political controversy surrounding FCPA reform and enforcement. Uh, And the Justice Department and the SEC devoted significant time and effort to it. It's an extraordinary document in my view, and you'll always hear me say that just because of the um, the extent to which it provides information from prosecutors about how they exercise their discretion, prosecute cases, and how what they expect in the compliance arena, which is very important. Uh, I've also mentioned the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which was issued by the Justice Department on February 8, 2017, uh, which tracks and expands on elements of the of an effective compliance program from the FCPA guidance, uh, and it provides an overview of sort of best practices through questions. The, the, the reason that all of this is important, in my view, is the FC, FCPA guidance provides important discussion about FCPA law. It gives an overview and explanation of in the enforcement approach Uh, It prohibits sort of major policy deviations without significant explanations, and uh, it creates safe harbors and uh, legal boundaries where conduct can be sort of strongly defended and risk can be minimized. We're going to talk about a couple of the safe harbors that I think are really important in the compliance space um, relating to third-party ownership, due diligence, foreign official travel. Uh, as well as gifts, Meals and entertainment, uh, which is kind of a follow on to our recent uh, my recent uh, podcast on the same subject. We also obviously look at speeches and statements that are made, but the guidance itself, along with sort of the consistent track record in enforcement, which I think has been improving over the last five, six years, uh, has provided important sort of guideposts for compliance programs and how to handle. Uh, specific issues. So it's a good uh, template for a lot of issues. Um, There are practical strategies uh, that are important that come from this, and it gives comfort to people to uh, make certain uh, decisions in resolving problems that come up. Uh, They're hypotheticals that they are included in the FCPA guidance, which are really important. And you can model sort of uh, some of your solutions based upon those hypotheticals. And that's my point about the safe harbors and the fact that we look for safe harbors. So, um, so these are all important issues to sort of look at. Um, so, let's talk about some of the legal issues that are, that come up. Um, One is, in the guidance itself is an important discussion of the terms corruptly and willfully. For compliance uh, officers, I think this discussion is really important. Uh, Companies can solve important questions by acting transparently and in good faith, which is contrary to the type of intent that's needed uh, and evidence that the government needs to show corrupt or willful type of conduct. So with respect to corrupt intent, the basic definition is keyed to the actor's desire to induce the recipient to misuse his official position or to act contrary to an official responsibility or function. In other words, so while I may be making a payment or giving a benefit to a foreign official, what has to be keyed in my head and has to be proven beyond reasonable doubt in a, critical, in, a, uh, in a criminal case is that I am intending to induce the recipient to misuse, to act contrary to his or her official position or duties or responsibilities or function uh, through the payment of money or the transfer of some kind of benefit. The term willful applies only to individual uh, defendants, and it's kind of an anomaly, and not to corporate actors. And this was actually one incongruity that uh, the Chamber of Commerce back in 2011 had proposed as a reform is to uh, apply the term willful with regard to corporate actors. Uh, The Supreme Court, though, has repeatedly criticized Congress for using uh, the term willful, which can have varied meanings and interpretations depending upon the specific context. But probably the most uh, helpful case from the Supreme Court in this area is a case called United States v. Bryan, which established an important definition for willful, which arguably, or applies in the FCPA context, a willful act is one that is undertaken with a bad purpose, meaning that the actor does not need to know a specific law, so they don't need to know that you're violating the FCPA, that the actor is violating, only that the actor is doing something wrong. So the payment made to a foreign official to induce that foreign official to act contrary to his or her duties Uh, has to be made with a bad purpose. So take those explanations as guideposts. That's important in terms of helping us with regard to safe harbors that companies can build to ensure compliance. In other words, that to me is the reason that we have documentation or we uh, Or we include an exp- a good faith explanation for why we believe our conduct is legal or our decision in terms of a gift, a meal, a hospitality arrangement, or you know more important arrangements uh, are okay, and they, they don't cross the line so criminals, like I said, tend to act secretly to avoid detection and without regard to internal controls which are designed to promote compliance. When a company takes actions, in my view, in good faith, they are co- they are acting contrary to such intent. Companies that adhere to procedures and controls, which are aimed at compliance, are helping to build that safe harbor. So this doesn't mean that every action or issue considered requires lengthy and costly documentation. Rather, what I'm saying is this approach is designed to prioritize risks, and then build safe harbors around the higher risks. It's a refined and sort of careful approach to compliance, and it should be built into almost all of your important procedures, like third-party risk, managing your third-party. In other words, to maximize your legal protection while minimizing uh, the use of compliance and legal resources on individual transactions. So once risks are prioritized and systems are designed to address those risks, then you have to develop important protocols. So in the higher risk operations, you should take steps, for example, to document any decision or action, explain the reason for action or inaction, and provide a legal analysis which supports the action. So acting in that manner is consistent with corrupt and willful, uh, I- inconsistent with corrupt and willful intent, and therefore helps to negate any inference of criminal uh, intent. So let's talk about a couple of areas. Let's start first with uh, paying for gifts, meals, travel, and entertainment expenses. In the FCPA guidance, we've there's some important distinctions between improper and proper gifts. And appropriate gifts are those which tend, which are usually given openly and transparently, properly recorded in the company's books and records, motivated by a desire to express esteem or gratitude and not corrupt intent to induce illegal behavior, and are permitted under local law. So the key touchstone here, again, in distinguishing between legitimate motives, and corrupt intent circles uh, surrounds these types of issues. Um, Enforcement authorities, uh, and this is mentioned in the FCPA guidance, are not focused on ordinary and legitimate promotion of a business. Instead, they are focused uh, on conduct that is intended to induce the foreign officials to act contrary to his or her duties. one warning shot here from the FCPA guidance, however, is, and this is a statement, and I'm going to quote it, DOJ's and SEC's anti-bribery enforcement actions have focused on small payments and gifts only when they comprise part of a systemic or long-standing course of conduct that evidences a scheme to corruptly pay foreign officials to obtain or retain business. So compliance officers who struggle over paying expenses for one gift, one meal, one trip should breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, payments or gifts of nominal or modest values will never be the focus of government prosecutors. Large or extravagant payments, however, can be illegal. Uh, and then in that sort of gray area in the middle, we look at um, what is the surrounding, what are the surrounding circumstances so that modest becomes more of a safe harbor versus extravagance, which is not obviously, which gets you closer to a corrupt intent. So use common sense in this area. In the travel and lodging context, the guidance points to the affirmative defense allowing, quote, reasonable and bona fide Close quote expenditures directly related to promotional or performance functions. Again, the FCPA guidance reiterated that it's not interested, the government is not interested in prosecuting a one-time expenditure, but is more focused on systemic violations which involve egregious and lavish payments for foreign officials and spouses or family members. So, for example, we have the recent Um, UTC enforcement action. If you listen to the podcast on that, there was sort of a course of dealing with regard to extravagant payments for foreign officials, uh, supposedly to check out um, facilities or uh, services or products that the uh, UTC could provide, Pratt and Whitney, uh, in this case, the uh, the the, air. Uh, air engine manufacturer, and uh, and they were obviously sending people to other locations for other purposes, and that's what we're talking about. So there's nothing that's like so controversial here or earth-shattering in these statements. However, uh, the FCPA guidance does include a few important points, more data points that can be uh, used to create safe harbors in any compliance program. So, for example. paid for dinners, drinks, and entertainment for a government official would be improper. Paying for a trip for government officials, which consisted primarily of sightseeing, would be improper. Inviting and paying for prospective customers uh, and their bar tab at a trade show would be permissible. Giving a moderately priced gift to a government official for a wedding or a family event would be permissible. Paying for travel Entertainment and accommodations for government officials to come to a U.S.-located factory for inspection or training purposes, which included business class tickets, moderately priced dinners, a baseball game, and a play, would be permissible. That's an important safe harbor right there because this situation comes up quite often. In addition, the FCPA guidance provided a helpful check, checklist of safeguards, and these are based upon prior opinion releases that came from individual situations where uh, petitioners sought uh, you know, re, re, uh, sought guidance from the Justice Department on specific events. And this, is, this will help companies decide whether an expenditure falls within the affirmative defense. So remember these principles because they're really important. One, do not select the foreign officials to participate in the event or use uh, a sy- systematic evaluation to identify uh, appropriate officials to attend. So um, do not select the, the use a neutral type of evaluation technique uh, to identify the appropriate officials to attend. Two, pay all costs directly to vendors and do not put cash in the pockets of any foreign officials attending an event as an advance or for reimbursement. Three, ensure that any stipends that are given are reasonable estimates of expected costs and do not provide any additional compensation or money to foreign officials. Four, ensure that payments are transparent and accurately reflected in company books and records. Five, do not condition payments on any specific action by a foreign official, and six, obtain written confirmation that payments do not violate local law. So that's um, those are really sort of um, some good principles to apply. And particularly with the gifts, meals, uh, entertainment, but more importantly with regard to the travel uh, and sponsoring travel by government officials to come to your facility or to go to another location for training purposes, for marketing purposes, for presentations that are business related. And the bulk of the time has to be business related. It can't be related to tourism. Then, surrounding the both, let's say eight hours a day dedicated to business purposes, it's okay to take them to a good meal. It's okay to go to a play, go to a baseball game, to give them tokens for uh, attending the event. Um, those types of uh, type of uh, arrangements are definitely proper and can be done, and again, this would be something that would be documented, clearly laid out, how it's going to be done, and with a legal opinion that it is uh, permissible under the affirmative defense uh, requirements. The guidance also includes some important uh, information on third-party due diligence examples. And I want to go through two hypotheticals which, they, uh, which are laid out in the guidance. So assume that company A hires a local consultant in a high-risk country to hopefully win a government business contract. The consultant has strong ties to political and government leaders in the country and is paid a significant monthly retainer, as well as a success fee of 3% of the contract value for any contract the company wins. Now, so we know that this is a risky type of situation. This is a high-risk situation. Uh, And we have to make sure that we have heightened FCPA-related due diligence. We have plenty of red flags in this situation. We have the high-risk country, the size of the deal, uh, that let's say there's no prior relationship with the consultant. The consultant has strong ties to political and business leaders. There's a success fee structure. And let's hope that the services themselves that the consultant is going to provide are not just vaguely defined, vaguely built uh, on a monthly basis, let's say. So the due diligence in, in this situation would include a background check, reference checks, ensuring that the contract spells out exactly what the services are in the deliverables, such as written status reports or other documentation of the efforts and the work done by the consultant. We would train the consultant on the FCPA. We'd uh, require an FCPA compliance representation, certification, and attestation. We would also have audit rights, Those and that payments must be based on proper documentation of services provided. That is uh, that's a critical type of situation but that that's the kind of due diligence that the guidance talks about in a situation with a high risk structure like that they're not saying that you can't do business but they're saying that if you do business there have to be certain protections put into place there also is another example which uh, is comes up as well and this is the example where we have local, government ownership in uh, the uh, third party. So let's go through this hypothetical. Company A retains an often-used local distributor who requests an additional discount or rebate or contribution to its marketing efforts, which is larger than usual. So that could be, for example, uh, a marketing fund allowance, a rebate, a discount, some type of compensation. A foreign government officer directs Company A. In other words, a government official says to Company A, "Please use this local company as a subcontractor for installation, training, and other services." So they tell the d- the local company, "Use the distributor," uh, and I mean, or. We're, when you're using this distributor, make sure that you use this subcontractor for the installation training and other service, because we believe that they provide good service. So there's a solid working relationship then with the local partner. This uh, The ministry or the government uh, agency says that this will reduce the disruption to the ministry for the local partner to perform the on-site work. Now, many cases, people will just say, I won't deal with that local partner. Um, And one of the principles of the, let's say, of the local partner is a government official in another government ministry that has nothing to do with the services that are being provided in this case. So now we have red flags. We have major, major red flags. Foreign official is the owner in a local partner. The distributor has requested an additional discount, and we have a reference, a referral from the the government official uh, or the government ministry recommending the use of this local partner. So there have to be lots of due diligence in this situation. First off, What's interesting in the guidance is that the Justice Department and the SEC say there is nothing inherently illegal about contracting with a third party that is recommended by the end user. Now, usually I call that the kiss of death, uh, but remember that the government said that. And then they said another thing, nothing inherently illegal about hiring a government official to perform legitimate services on a transaction unrelated to his or her government job. So assume that the government official is a person who is the minister of education, and then all of a sudden, as the minister of education... They're involved in providing computer services to, let's say, another uh, agency as a local partner. They have, let's say, an IT type of company. What the government is saying and the prosecutors are saying is that that is not inherently illegal, but they want you to do due diligence. And in this case, what you have to look at is to make sure that that government principle number one Uh, has no role in the ministry's decision to award the contract to company A. In other words, that because he or she is in a different ministry, they're not going to have any impact. They would notify the ministry that is considering the contract and uh, also have the principal notify the ministry and his own ministry of his proposed or her proposed involvement in the transaction and certify that he or she will abide by the FCPA and uh, disclose his involvement in the transaction and also make sure that it's permitted by local law. So these are situations where the government says you can make it through due diligence, you can have these situations, even though it's not inherently uh, illegal, and even though it presents high risks. These are definitely high risk situations that require sort of risk mitigation uh, strategies. So those are, those are important things to look at in terms of hypotheticals. And these are safe harbors, again, because they're telling you that there is nothing inherently illegal. However, the government is setting up a high burden for you to get these type of arrangements through due diligence so that it can work properly. One last issue I wanted to discuss after the third-party due diligence issue is successor liability when there's a A lot of discussion in the FCPA guidance about successor liability and acquiring a company and an FCPA violation. Uh, Just one plug here quickly. We work a lot with companies on integration of acquisitions uh, and the steps that we're going to talk about. Pre-acquisition due diligence is absolutely important. Uh, but it's uh, but the emphasis uh, lately has uh, come, and the government's sort of come full circle starting in two thousand and ten all the way up to now, uh, where they've uh, said that they will apply the corporate uh, enforcement policy uh, for mergers and acquisitions. But basically, um, the real issue now is that companies that are engaged in mergers and acquisitions obviously have to conduct pre-acquisition due diligence, include appropriate reps and warranties, make sure that and plan for the integration. And once the uh, closing occurs is really where you get to the important points. One is the government wants to make sure that the acquiring company's code of conduct and compliance policies apply as quickly as is practicable to a newly acquired business or merged entity. Two, they want you to train the directors, officers, and employees of the newly acquired business as quickly as practicable. They want Three, they want you to train agents and business partners as well, uh, as quickly as practicable. And that's been translated into roughly 18 months or so. Most importantly, and what takes time, is to conduct an FCPA-specific audit of newly acquired businesses as quickly as practicable. And I, I advise companies in 18 months or less, and obviously to voluntarily disclose any corrupt payments or problems that are discovered. If you do that, all of this within a quick uh, 18 months after acquisition, the government is basically saying we'll give you a safe harbor in the sense of if you do all this, uh, we're going to not impose any requirements upon you or any penalties upon you uh, if you do that. The question is will They impose disgorgement requirements, and that's still an issue, I think, uh, to be uh, developed. But nonetheless, this is an important statement with regard to mergers uh, and acquisition in terms of due diligence. And there's obviously a lot of uh, auditing and uh, risk ranking that has to occur during the audit in terms of how you structure the audit, how you define the audit in the post-acquisition context. And uh, these are important issues that have to be uh, dealt with. Well, uh, remember that uh, the guidance also keys in a lot towards the concept of an effective compliance program and the definition from the U.S. sentencing guidelines. Uh, the guidance reiterates an important, significant incentives to, uh, to design and implement an effective compliance program uh, relating to the amount of fine, whether you're going to get a declination, uh, deferred prosecution agreement, or a monitorship. And we've had subsequent guidance to 2012. And I'll close with an important quote. Uh, which says, In appropriate circumstances, DOJ and SEC may decline to pursue charges against a company based on the company's effective compliance program or may otherwise seek to reward a company for its program, even when that program did not prevent the particular underlying FCPA violation that gave rise to the investigation. An important quote and incentive, and has been followed up, in two ways. One, with the FCPA pilot program, but more importantly, with the FCPA corporate enforcement program, which is now in uh, force and applicable in the merger and acquisition context as well. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Uh, subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.bolkopflaw.com, our forward blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact me anytime at my email address, mbolkopf Let us know how we can help you.